I'm Daniel Hartz, and this is the Sustainability Champions podcast, where we highlight the people, ideas, and innovations that are protecting and healing the planet. My guest today is Harriet Lamb, CEO of Ashton, a nonprofit based in London that accelerates transformative climate solutions and builds a more just world. They award people and organizations from around the world to show how sustainable energy can transform lives. I'm really looking forward to learning all about this. Thank you so much for joining me, Harriet. Oh, Daniel, it's great to be with you on the Sustainability Champions podcast. Well, thank you very much. So today I'd love to talk about three things primarily. Number one is Ashton's role in reversing climate change. Number two, a few of the amazing companies that you've seen and some of the trends uh, as far as um, the, the sustainability space. And then, of course, your background, including your work both at, at Ashton and uh, as CEO of Fairtrade International which I think is a, also a very interesting organization. So first and foremost, can you give a little bit of background? What exactly does Ashton do? So at Ashton, we run a series of awards. And in fact, the big unveiling of the winners of this year's awards is on Thursday, 2nd of July. So please book your place. It's an online ceremony this year for the first time. So we identify who are the real leaders in different sectors. For example. This year, we've got an award for uh, energy for people in refugee camps, mm. uh, or we've got an award for indigenous people finding nature-based solutions to climate change. So each year, we have a series of awards. We scour the world to find the leaders, the pioneers, people are doing really interesting and breaking new ground, not necessarily technologically. It could also be in the way they work, the way they're working to reach the most marginalized people. And we put the spotlight on them to share their amazing and always inspiring stories of what they've achieved, often against the odds, in order to really catalyze wider change for people to back them, that particular project or program, but also for others to steal with pride their ideas, because we believe we have all the solutions we need to climate change in spades. What we need to do is get behind them, take them to scale or replicate them globally. Wonderful. Um, I can really relate to that because as I said at the very, very, the very first sentence I said is uh, sustainability champions highlights the people, ideas and innovations that are protecting and healing the planet. And that's the little motto that I've uh, come up for, for what I'm doing. And it sounds so similar to what you just said. So I, yeah, um, that's why of, we were so thrilled when we found your podcast. You oh, know? wonderful. <laughs> Hello, travelers. <laughs> yeah, how, how fantastic. So I'm, I'm, I'd love to know, I'm, and you kind of mentioned it, but um, and there's so many other questions to ask here. So why, why is this work of highlighting or, or putting a spotlight, as you said, why is it so important to moving the sustainability agenda forward? Well, we've got 10 years left to fix it, all the science shows. At the most, we've got 10 years to take the kind of radical, dramatic action we need to take to stop the climate crisis's worst impacts. And in those 10 years, sometimes, you know, individuals, you and me, can feel really overwhelmed by the scale mm. of the crisis. We think, oh, my Lord, you know, what on earth can I do? And it's the same sometimes for policymakers. So if you take in Britain, for example, 70% of all local authorities have declared a climate emergency. And then they look at each other and say, now what do we do? And they need a climate action plan. If you think there's an emergency, 
you need to develop the plan. And so both for us as individuals or for policymakers or for local government or national government, what we need to do is say the solutions are there. Look, look at the myriad of solutions that are out there and get behind them and back them. So to give you one example, we then developed a toolkit for local authorities on how could they develop their action plans to tackle the climate emergency, looking at what's best practice in transport? What's happening in transport? Who's doing really interesting work? And then we'd say, oh, here's an Ashton winner that, for example, helped uh, communities in Birmingham who don't normally get on bicycles. Mm -hmm. It helped them have access to bicycles, learn how to cycle, and that actually enabled them to get access to new jobs because they were able to travel more easily. Interesting. Or to take another example, we would say, oh, if you want to really... Um, tackle, for example, energy in your local authority. Oh, here's Repowering, an amazing community energy group based in Brixton, who are really working on estates, on marginalised estates, to help them put solar panels on their roof, but also to help the young people get trained in the skills of the future of solar energy. So it's taking those examples of people doing incredible work, in this example, putting it into a toolkit, which helps local sustainability officers in local authorities who have no resources. It helps, gives them the framing and the way to develop their climate action plan. So that's just one example of some of the work we've been doing here in Britain, which honestly, our city's toolkit, which is on our website, I mean, it's just been flying off the shelves. Amazing. Because people are hungry for these kind of absolutely practical, concrete examples. Well, the latest fashionable phrase is shovel ready. <laughs> these are ideas, they're ready to go. Yeah. They just need, they actually need more central government backing. And that's why we're also calling on central government as they think of how do we come out of the COVID crisis? What is the way out? Where should they be investing their funds? We would say they should be investing in these well-proven techniques that can help us have a green recovery and build back better so that we're both rebooting the economy, but not in the old stale way of the past, but in a way that also addresses climate change and generates jobs for people, ensures there's cleaner air because you've got fewer cars or warmer homes because you've dealt with the housing problems. What it sounds like to me is that you're basically doing the hard work of discovering the solutions and then saying, uh, you know, we, we found all of these potential uh, ways of dealing with with all these different problems because there are so many problems as well as many many solutions um, and then do you speak with the government is that a big part of what Ashton does in terms of saying like um, you, you mentioned housing issues so here are you know 10 or 15 different solutions from across the world that you for, for instance the UK government can actually implement today and that's the shovel ready that you're talking about. Exactly. Um, so where we've worked most closely until now has been with local government and local authorities. Okay. And actually, we believe they need more support and more finance. Their finances over the past few decades have been decimated. Hmm. But they're the people who are closest to their populations. They're closest to their economies. True. And we think the economic solutions not lie not in mega projects necessarily, but actually in investing, in, help, in in giving the resources to local authorities to invest in their areas because they know best where are the areas of greatest deprivation and need and how best to reach the most marginalised. So to give you one example, 
Britain has a real problem of old, cold housing. Hmm. We have to invest in what's called retrofitting, which means making those old, cold homes warmer and fit for living in. And that actually helps residents have lower fuel bills and it helps lower their carbon footprint. And so there's a brilliant organisation called Energy Sprong. They're an Ashton winner last year who retrofit social housing. Hmm. They say it's a bit like putting a tea cosy on a house, but on a row of houses, on social housing. Uh, and so there's an amazing example which local authorities could call them into their area to say, can you help us um, retrofit our social housing in our area? And meanwhile, we're also calling on central government to put in the right place, the right policies and the right investments to enable that kind of local action to take place. Amazing. And so was this this company, um, did you say it's called Energy Sprong? Energy Sprong. It's a Dutch company originally okay. where they've uh, done very, very, well, very, very well. And then they've launched in Britain more recently and again, proving incredibly successful. Fantastic. So Energy Sprong, is that, um, just to understand where it, where Ashton's role is here. So uh, Ashton found Energy Sprong. They, um, you uh, gave them an award for uh, for being one of these sustainable sustainable companies. And because of that, the government, then the UK local authorities discovered Energy Sprong through your magnification and by spotlighting them. Well, I don't want to overplay our part. In every case, it's different as well. I of see. course, Energy Sprong was already doing a great job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And they're obviously the organisations whom we award, they're the ones doing the really hard graft work of finding the innovation, making sure it works technologically and from a business perspective. But exactly, we want to put the spotlight on them Mm -hmm. so that they can either scale up or be replicated. And obviously the impact that we have as an award really varies because some organisations are much bigger are more established and others are much smaller, much more under the radar, less well known. And for for some of them, obviously, being recognised by Ashton, it's a bit like a stamp of approval if they then go to donors or the spotlight might actually really mean that they get noticed and backed by whether it's finance or whether it's local authorities. So it, it does vary, I have to say. And obviously, it's a, it's a wonderful family and we all yeah. work together to support each other. And Above all else, it is different uh, people in the Ashton family talking to each other is often the most effective way. It's that peer-to-peer learning is often mm. the best way for best practice to spread. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. So interestingly enough, um, I think you, you've mentioned so far a couple of companies in the UK, uh, Energy Sprong based in, in uh, the Netherlands. Uh, Ashton doesn't only focus on um European com- uh, companies and organizations. You're you're very global. How how do you find all of these companies that you award? You mentioned that you you scour the planet, um, and I, I love that word. So how how do you how does the scouring work? <laughs> well, uh, do you know what? Above all else, Daniel, it's talking to people, uh, and I love talking, so that's good. <laughs> it's talking to people about it, and people hear it. And I hope if anyone hears this program and thinks, well, I know this most amazing company doing this really interesting work then please get in touch because so often this is how it works. Mm. Obviously, working away on the computer, (laughs) you can do a lot of research on the computer. And obviously, it's talking to people who know people who know people and the word spreads. So uh, really, it's all different ways that uh, people come to us and that they hear about Ashton or that we hear about them. 
Um, so as I say, please do go to our website, which is www.ashton.org and have a look. And if you know anyone who you think would be interested, please put them in touch. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, just to be just to be perfectly clear, it's anywhere in the world. Uh, in terms yes, of so as you said in fact ashton started really to put the spotlight 20 years ago on the problem that there are too many people in the world still do not have access to electricity and so when ashton started it it was about really saying we've got to put the spotlight on the problem of access to energy for the poorest people who are the most left behind and from then, it has grown hmm. uh, and become this coveted award. And we've also expanded to take on not only the global side of the picture, but also the the UK. And we're also always looking at what are the m- new and most important areas. And that's why, for example, last year we launched a new award on cooling. Now, uh, Mainly in Britain, our biggest problem is around heating. But hey, over the past uh, few days, we've had our own uh, very hot, unusually hot temperatures uh, here in Britain. Obviously, it's part of global warming. Uh, And so we've had a few scorchers. And when you have those scorchers, uh, it can can remind you that actually in many parts of the world, people then whack on the air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And air conditioning, of course, adds to global warming. So the hotter the climate gets, the more people are using air conditioning, which itself causes more global warming. It's an absolute vicious circle we're trapped in. So we are part of a big coalition that said we have to put the spotlight on the need to find new solutions to cooling, to helping cities cool down. So a really fantastic winner last year was the city of Medellin in Colombia, which uh, some of you may know about Medellin because of the film Escobar or the series all about Pablo Escobar. Uh, And it was, Medellin was once most famous for being uh, the home of the drunks gangs Mm -hmm. and having the highest uh, murder rates in the world. And despite having all those issues to deal with, the mayor of Medellin is a very visionary person who said, we have got to tackle the rising temperatures in Medellin. And the way they went about it was by taking all the back alleys and the rubbish dumps, the places where actually the drug gangs would hang about, where it wasn't safe to go. And they've taken them and they've trained up people from the marginalised areas in how to plant uh, trees and bushes and flowers. They plant thousands um, of shrubs and greenery and they've created the green corridors that you can now cycle around the city. They've created these places that what was once the rubbish dump is now a children's playground where the mums hang around and can chat to each other and they've brought down the temperature by over one degree in many of those places. And so it's a really wonderful example of what Medellin have done with all the issues stacked against them. If Medellin could do it, I would think, hey, guys, come on, can't more of us do that in some of our cities to have green corridors and the better place to live as well as bringing down the temperature. Yeah, I think that's a it's a very clever solution, and indeed, cooling cooling down cities is a really interesting, uh, I think, a really interesting uh, kind of topic to explore because uh, you're absolutely right. I mean. If it's if it's you know thirty one degrees in London um, and and that's tough. Imagine. What about in cities where thirty one is a is a cool day? 
I mean, we have some of the cities we've um, been talking to for this year's award, cities like Ahmedabad in India. I mean, they seem temperatures going over 40, over 45, over 50. I mean, they hit 50 degrees in Delhi last year. I mean, it's unthinkable. And of course, it's dangerous. People die of heat strokes when the temperatures get that high, especially uh, the poorest people who have no choice but are outside in those kind of temperatures. Obviously, the better off people can always retreat into cooler homes, but the poorest people are the most vulnerable, and that's why it's so important that action is taken actually to protect people. So Ahmedabad uh, has a whole heat action plan where they issue warnings, they reach out to people, they have water points, they have, they're painting uh, the roofs white, all kinds of initiatives to try to cool the city down and to protect the most vulnerable when the temperatures do skyrocket. Yeah, I think what's um, going back to the way Medellin is doing it, and I'm sure Ahmedabad is doing it in a, in a similar way as well in terms of planting trees. It's such a it's a it's a really clever way of doing it because it's um, first of all you're creating a lot of shade that way, which obviously helps a lot, and you're also by doing that you're reducing you're, you're sequestering carbon because Absolutely. of all the trees. Um, and Absolutely. And you're making it a nicer place to live. Yeah, it's I mean, that's what all the residents of Medellin said. They said, oh, my God, it's so lovely. The birds and the bees have come back. Exactly. <laughs> and it's a lovely place. It's, you know, it's lovely to walk from, from here to here because you're walking along a green corridor as opposed to a, you know, dusty, dirty, grey concrete. Yeah. So what's not to like? Exactly. And that, we've, just, we've just got to sort of pile in behind these nature-based solutions and interestingly, some of the people who, of course, know best about working with nature are, of course, the di- indigenous communities mm. around the world who are very often the most hit by climate change, have the least resources to deal with it, have done the least to cause it, but actually often also have traditional answers in how we can Im- improve the situation. So one of our finalists this year in the Ashton Awards is a a network in Brazil Hmm. of indigenous people who collect seeds and then they're selling them to local farmers uh, to plant, to reforest some of the land that's been degraded. So historically there's been clashes between the indigenous people protecting the forest, the farmers cutting down trees and planting crops to to, uh, sort of more cash crops. And this is a brilliant way by actually using the indigenous people's traditional way of scattering seeds it's a very ancient technique where you don't have seedlings and rear them and plant you scatter the seeds and actually it's far more efficient far more effective and critically in this way the indigenous people and the farmers are coming together and that's also helping then lower the tension in the area while also reforesting the area yeah so it's it's another great solution Absolutely. That's fantastic. And um, just one more thing, which I realize is you can also plant um, fruit trees. Uh, and I, I think in in Seattle, it, it was, um, I read that they're, what they're doing is they're planting fruit trees in the parks um, around the city so that people can eat the fruits. And uh, It's so lovely, isn't it? And I think there is a whole movement growing of people saying, you know, urban gardening, urban vegetable growing, planting more trees. Uh, and as a way, as you say, both also to get um, food to people on very low incomes. Mm. Um, and one great example, uh, I mentioned V Powering, who put solar panels onto housing estates. And um, that was how they started. 
And then they realize once the panels are up on the top of a high-rise block, no one sees them. And so half the work about raising awareness is, is gone. Right. And they started to think about what are other ways to engage people? What's the next step? And they realized that, of course, lack of access to good, healthy food is one of the biggest problems mm. on those estates. They're often food deserts. And so they found, though, there's often pockets of land lying derelict. And in particular, along in London, along railway lines, there's lots of waste land. And so they've set up this incredible scheme called Energy Gardens, where they lo local communities on the estates get to grow nutritious fruit and vegetables on this wasteland. Uh, they're powered by solar energy. They're growing good food. They're getting better food to eat, but it's also a great skill to learn and an activity. And uh, they're such a great group. They've then gone on from doing that. They started growing hops in these little energy gardens. And from the hops, they're making Energy Garden Ale, uh -huh. which is just a fantastic craft beer. Uh, and I really recommend you should look out for it. Uh, the only watch out is uh, you have to put it in the fridge because otherwise it's just a little bit fizzy. <laughs> but I think that encapsulates the group because they're just so full of energy. It's kind of <laughs> bursting out. So look out for Energy Garden Ale. Fantastic. Yeah, I definitely want to try Energy Garden Ale. Um, and Moving over to um, something a little bit different, I know that you're very passionate about education and schools, and that's a, a very important part of the work that you do. So, can you can you tell tell me a little bit about the uh, the schools campaign uh, that you're that you're working on? Absolutely, and I, I think we've all seen how young people have been absolutely critical to changing the debate, mm. uh, Britain and globally. It's been young people, it's been the school strikers who've gone out there and said, you're messing up our future. That I think has had the most powerful impact on policymakers of any campaigning for years. And we've actually always worked at Ashton, we've always worked with schools. We started doing an award scheme. Uh, for schools to sort of find the greenest school in the land. And uh, from then, uh, we went on to supporting schools to help them reduce their carbon footprint. And um, through our scheme, actually, schools in the first year can very often reduce their carbon footprint by 14%. And critically for schools, they can save 12% on their energy bills. Wow. Because schools are so hard uh, strapped for cash that that's obviously a very strong driver. And so we've helped over 500 schools reduce their carbon footprint, but we just felt this is too incremental, too slow. Mm. We're facing a crisis. We've got to pick up the pace. So we're just about to launch with hopefully back to school in September, a new campaign calling on all Britain's schools to reach zero carbon by 2030. Wow. So it's wildly ambitious. Our idea is... Each school says, yes, we commit. We commit to play our part to reach zero carbon. And that would be across a number of areas where schools have a carbon footprint. So the first one would be looking at the food that they buy. And they might like to have meat-free Mondays or finding different ways to reduce the carbon footprint of the food. Then looking at how are the kids getting to school? Are they walking and cycling or are they driving all the time? Mm. Tackling that. It's looking at the curriculum and what are the children learning in school? And, of course, it's looking at the buildings and the energy uh, that they're using. So the school says, we commit to play our part. We've already done these things. Now we're going to do these things. And we call upon you, government, to give us the financial resources we need to get to zero carbon. 
because most schools have no money. They can barely buy pencils, let alone contemplate replacing that old boiler or putting up double glazing or putting up solar panels. And so what we're calling on is both schools playing their part, but government backing them. We've got here a, a commitment to be zero carbon as a country by 2050. And we think what better place to start than schools where young people have got the energy, they want to do something, they've been protesting. Here's a very concrete, positive action they can take back to their schools. And it's a great way to sort of spread the message throughout society because every day, 10 million people walk through the school gate in the UK. Children, staff, and then behind them are all the parents and the governors and the suppliers. So it's a great way to have a ripple effect to help Britain reach zero carbon. And we've got to do it earlier than the legislation demands. So our campaign kicks off in September. We really hope you'll get in touch, anyone who's interested to join. And already, way before we've even started here, we've got people from other parts of the world saying, hey, this sounds cool. We want to get involved and have a similar campaign here. So I, I think it's going to fly. That's so cool. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, starting with schools is a really interesting place to begin because I've heard over and over again, just, um, uh, you know, just anecdotally, how parents say that they make changes to their habits at home because their children are bringing things up. Like, you know, the, the kids learn something at school about recycling and, and they say, you know, we're not doing it correctly. Or did you know this, that, and the other, and, and parents start making shifts. So if there is a way you, you mentioned that, um, changing the curriculum or, or at least incorporating these kind of things into the curriculum, it's so powerful. And, and the ripple effect, I think, can be very broad and, and very wide. I completely agree, Daniel. You know, we, we always talk about pester power. It, as it, when, 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 when people think, well, the kids have pushed me to do something negative. But I think actually pester power works brilliantly in also pushing positive change. And we know for example, when schools do trial closing off the road so that you have to walk or cycle or you, you can't drive, uh, the people often say, you know, the kids come home and say, no, mom, we, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be driving to school anymore or turn off the engine, don't leave it idling, that's bad for the environment. Uh, and they can be such fantastic champions because they cut through all the blah, blah excuses we give ourselves and they just go straight to the point of, if the planet's on fire, we better we better put it out. Yeah, exactly. I think that's fantastic. And um, also, if they're if they just say it with such um, kind of like you said, cutting through everything, and and there's almost this naivety in terms of how it's very simple. And indeed, sometimes it is very simple. It's just the story that we tell ourselves that makes it complicated. It's the complete authenticity. I think you're exactly. right that it's yeah. not oh here we go usual suspects environmental charity says kind of. And people slightly discount it when it's these young people are just saying it because they really, really, really strongly believe it. And I think that's their power, isn't it, in having helped shift the debates. And now it's our responsibility uh, as adults to help shift the policies, the practices, the actions that we're all taking to live up to what they're asking of us. Yeah. Absolutely. And from the the wide variety of um, projects that you see, I suppose the first thing I'm curious to know about is, let's, let's say, you know, you, you've been told about several projects, you've done your discovery, and, and now it's time to present the awards and actually find the, the finalists. And as you mentioned, the awards are coming up on Thursday, the second here. Um, 
so how do you actually judge the projects? Um, if you, I, I imagine you have these uh, just stacks of either applications or just companies, and you're thinking, okay, we need to pick the finalists. So what's the, uh, what's the process there like? Well, the truth is, of course, it's a complete nightmare because there are so many amazing imagine, yeah. uh, organizations <laughs> who deserve to win. And you think, well, can't we more than one winner? <laughs> so we're always struggling with it. But how we do it, first off, uh, we have a process right up front to make sure that people who won't get through don't waste their time. So we do webinars. We talk people through. We help people feel that they know they've got a chance. Uh, and then we have a panel of judges who come together and they would be experts in the area. So, for example, with our new award on uh, energy and refugee camps, we had um, somebody who was a community activist who was himself a refugee in London. We had someone in a refugee camp in Kenya. We had some people working in a policy arena on refugee policy, on, how, on energy access to refugees in an area they've worked on for 20 years. So we had a mix of uh, academic and lived experience mm-hmm. on the panel of judges. We then, uh, people submit their applications. The team do a first shifting and present the sort of top six or ten or so to the judges who then narrow it down. And then we get it down to about two in the end who we go and visit uh, and do well, normally we go and visit apart from in a COVID-19 year, but normally we would have people who go and visit and uh, see what they're doing, interview people, get the facts and the figures. And then we have someone who's got an eagle eye for finance looking over all the finance. Uh, and then we bring it together and present the two two finalists to the judges. And um, sometimes they submit videos or we talk to them direct via video. And the judges have the nightmare of going around to find which one in the end is going to win the award. Wow. It's a very involved process. <laughs> it is. It's a rigorous process. And that's why it's a coveted award. It's because you have to have really been through the mill. Not that it's, we hope, we hope it's not too much hard work, but it's rigorous. Yeah. Because we, uh, um, we don't want to overburden people because obviously only a small percentage are going to win. So you, you don't want it to be too heavy, but you want it to have rigor so that we can stand by anyone who's won an Ashton Award and they can be very proud of it and use it as a badge of approval when they are um, talking to uh, to others who they want to influence. Yeah, I think that's... Um... I think it is important. You're, you're absolutely right to make it rigorous uh, for going both ways. Like you said, it it really does. You you need to feel confident that you know we are actually awarding a company that we believe in and, and we can stand behind our decision. And also, then the company that went, does indeed win the award at the end, they can say we went through this. It, it wasn't easy, and we got there in the end. And and they they can actually be proud of it. Uh, and it's exactly. And I hope they honor. do. And I hope they then enjoy being part of the Ashton family mm. where again, they can swap tips and learn from yeah. other people uh, who've won an Ashton award and, and find out how they helped use that to propel them forward to the next stage. Yeah. As far as some of these um, we, we've talked about cooling cities and, and schools. Um, what are some of the other kind of on a broad level, some of the trends that you're seeing as far as companies that are coming out right now to work on, these uh, on, on some of the issues that we're, we're facing today? Well, I think one of the really interesting trends is about looking at really much more decentralized, democratized energy solutions. Interesting. So 
going back, for example, to our award for energy access in refugee camps. One of the finalists this year is an amazing organisation in Yemen. Mm. Uh, I mean, honestly, that country has been through such terrible internal conflict and so many people are displaced internally and have their lives torn apart. And in that situation, they not only don't have energy, uh, they also have no livelihoods. And so it's actually a United Nations program that came together to help use access to energy as a way to also create jobs. Hmm. And so they trained, in one one case, a group of women, which is actually very unusual in energy in Yemen, but it's very unusual globally, to be honest. They trained a group of women to come together and set up a community energy group where they have some solar panels, which they're then selling the energy to the community. So the community has access to energy, clean energy for the first time, Hmm. and the women are able to earn a livelihood by selling the energy. It's a win-win. And that would be one example of the kind of decentralised approaches that people are taking. To give you another example from our shortlist this year is Stolshare in Bangladesh, who've come up with a really brilliant solution to the problem of very decentralised energy, which is often you have a solar panel, I have a solar panel, and we're often generating more than we need but you often can't sell into the grid because you don't have that kind of connection. The whole point of these often what's called last mile distribution of energy is these are people way out, perhaps on islands, up in mountains, in very hard to reach areas Mm. where the grid hasn't reached yet. But through Solshare's idea, they got a little sort of box, if you like, and if I've got solar panels and I've got more energy than I need, I can sell it to you because maybe you can't afford even to have a solar panel, but you can afford to buy energy from me bit by bit when you need it. And then I sell to the local shop and then we form a little network or community and then if we've got extra, we can sell to the next door village and into their network. So it's this real idea of a decentralised people's grid of energy, which I definitely think is one of the solutions of the future. Mm. And another one, at the opposite end of the scale, but linked is people looking at real systemic shifts. So how do we get it so we don't rely only on the decentralised, but we actually get that up to a national level? And one of the shortlisted organisations there is the government of Togo. Togo faces, you know, many huge sections of the population don't have access to energy and they've set themselves an ambitious plan that includes a really clever combination of spots. Some villages will put on the grid as normal. Others were going to encourage to have these village level uh, solar energy plants. And for others, it might be down to the home level. But they've used this quite unusual mix at a national level. So really taking to scale the idea of decentralised energy, if that makes sense. <laughs> Centralised and decentralised. Yeah. <laughs> but really inspiring. So I think you do, because you, you need both all the time. You need these small people-run, people-owned solutions that are therefore much more democratic, but at the same time you need them at scale. So you always need that central central government push. I think that's really cool. It's very, um, in some ways, I, I think it's very enlightened or uh, kind of humble of a, of a central government to say, you know, we don't have the solutions or the or currently the wherewithal to be able to provide certain parts of our population with, in this case, energy. So what we want to do is help those uh, those communities to be independent. 
And that way they, that's what it sounds like to me is that they're supporting sort of their independence. And in many ways, I think that that's probably actually uh, a much more productive approach because those, um, those communities that are, you know, whether they're marginalized or just far away from the grid, they get the support and they're actually happier and they think, wow, the government actually believes in the work that we're doing as, as kind of individuals and um, as communities that are not necessarily connected. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And there's two other very progressive things about what they've done in Togo. One is they've said up front, we've got to subsidize this. Mm-hmm. So there's a direct subsidies to every family. It's sort of allocated a subsidy that then goes to the energy initiative. And that's actually very groundbreaking because you and me benefit from the grid. The grid is subsidised. Our governments pay to put up the grid that brings electricity to our houses. So it's always, it turns out, the wealthier you are, the less you pay for things. Hmm. Whereas very often poor people whom the grid doesn't reach end up having to pay for all their energy. But in this case, the government said, OK, we'll give you a subsidy so you can buy it from private providers, from co-ops, from NGOs. The other great thing they did, they said 40% of all the engineers on this project have to be women. That's fantastic. Wow. Because energy is a very male-dominated world. And yet it's often women who are the biggest users of energy, uh, who are doing all the work in the home, uh, helping the children do their homework, perhaps cooking. So they, they're the ones who most actually know about the kind of energy they need. Mm. And actually to say we want 40% of all the engineers to be women, I thought it was really great. That's so cool. Um, that's, uh, I, you're absolutely right. It's very progressive. Um, I'd like to just, I'm, I'm conscious of time, so I'd like to um, go a little bit back in time and uh, talk about your, your background a little bit because you originally started, um, or w- one of your major um, places where you began was Fairtrade International. Um, and I think that Fairtrade is such a, a, an important uh, organization. Obviously, the work Ashton is doing as well is, is, is very important to highlight. I, I think Fairtrade, that's a sticker that we've seen on so many different products. Um, briefly, uh, what is Fairtrade International? Well, if you buy your bananas, your tea, your coffee with that cheery little green and blue stamp saying Fairtrade, then you know that it's come from organized smallholder farmers or plantations where the workers are able to organize and that they've been paid a fair price that covers what it costs to grow the crops and with a premium on top of it, about 10%, that they can invest in their communities as they like, could be in improving their coffee co-op, enabling them to go higher up the value chain, washing their coffee or roasting it themselves, or improving the productivity of their trees, or it could be they decide to invest that in helping more young girls go to university, or in building a health centre, or in building roads so they can get to market. So all it's up to them. That's their premium. And so at the heart of fair trade is basically about making sure that farmers and workers in the developing world get a better deal. Because at the minute, our food is far too cheap. Mm. And tragically, far too many farmers and workers don't get a fair price. And that's what fair trade seeks to change. Yeah, I think that's a really important mission. I, as far as I think fair trade has seen most clearly on on bananas because it's just so easy to see uh, against the yellow um is the is the role of the or is the goal of the organization rather for all food um to have the sticker 
in the end, that would, of course, be the solution. I think we always felt that what we were trying to do in fair trade is create that little bubble in mainstream trade that showed that you can do trade differently, Mm -hmm. that you can put people and the planet first, because fair trade also has environmental standards, that you can put people and the planet first and still succeed commercially. So we wanted to prove the model in order to make a difference here and now, today, tomorrow, to currently about one and a half million smallholder farmers and workers around the world, and at the same time have a bigger impact in shifting the whole of company agendas and the whole of government agendas on how they regulate trade. So we've made some phenomenal progress. Fair trade went from being an idea that people laughed at, that they said it would never work, Then they admitted it might work as a tiny niche just for a few ultra greenies to really becoming a part of the way we can go shopping so that if you go into Waitrose, all the bananas are fair trade. So it becomes the norm, but a very special norm. Where we haven't made as much progress, honestly, is in shifting the whole of trade. But it is absolutely shocking if you see the poverty that cocoa farmers, for example, in West Africa live in. And so that it's half exhilarating and inspirational fair trade because really totally driven by you and me asking for fair trade products from shops from brands and then buying them when we saw them it's that campaigning but also that shopping power using our power as consumers has driven it and it's frustrating because still the world of trade is so dominated by a ruthless focus on profit price and short-term returns to shareholders who always seem to be more important than the farmers and workers on whom companies depend. So everything's still to play for. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like there is a lot of work, and I can see the the vein here of how it influences the work that you're currently doing. And I, I completely agree with you. I think you know putting people and planet first is actually not um, – it doesn't come necessarily at the cost of profits or at the cost of how the business actually runs and functions and whether or not it's successful. Um, and that's a big part of actually what I what I speak about on on this podcast is the ability for uh, so many different companies and people uh, and organizations that are profit driven to they are sustainable and sometimes actually being sustainable makes them more profitable because you're finding clever ways to reduce certain things use less energy or or like you said you know start powering by uh, uh, your electricity through solar and then selling off the the remainder and you're increasing your profits while reducing your costs and i don't think sustainability and and treating the planet and the people first has to come at all at the cost of of business or profits I couldn't agree more. And and actually, it has to be if it's going to succeed in the long term. It absolutely has to be. And I think that was where companies, if if you like, were amazed at the beginning, that they found actually, wow, this actually just really works also from a commercial point of view, that more people will buy my products. They also then feel good about the brand. And that's good for me as a whole. Therefore, I will sell, I will sell more. And another key driver for companies is that actually they began to wake up to the fact that if they don't pay the farmers and workers a fair price, they're not going to go on growing cocoa. Mm. I mean, if you're the son of a cocoa farmer and you look at the unbelievable hard work for poverty wages, you think, forget that for a laugh, I'm off to the city to try my luck there to see if I can get a better job and a better income in the city. And so many companies began to realise that there would not be cocoa farmers unless they began to pay them a fair price. 
And not only that, of course, any farmer is going to give their best product to their best customer. So the higher the price you're paying, the more you're getting good quality products, as well as assuring its long-term future. So it makes sense for companies, fair trade from a supply chain perspective. It makes sense because consumers have said absolutely clearly that's what they want and they're ready to put their money where their mouth is. And it often also works for companies from a staff morale point of view. Mm-hmm. The people want to feel proud of who they work for. We all do. And so if you know that your company has committed to go 100% fair trade, then people feel really proud of that. And they feel that they, they want to work for a company that is really doing the right thing. And then when they go out and tell their friends who they work for, they go, oh, wow, I hear, I hear you're doing great things on fair trade. So a company like Ben & Jerry's where everything that can be fair trade in Ben & Jerry's is And so people love that. They feel proud of that level of 100% commitment. But let's face it, we've also got a lot of laggards of companies that aren't treating their farmers and workers fairly. And that's why it's so important, I believe, that consumers keep up the pressure and keep changing that atmosphere within which companies operate. Absolutely. And I think that ties back into another really key uh, component of, you know, at least from the point of view of this podcast, sustainability champions. I always think that sustainability champions are, as I said at the beginning, people, ideas and innovations, because I think the individual does indeed have a lot of power. Um, You know, it's it's every time I buy a chocolate bar, for instance, I can make a decision that actually does affect the way other companies function and work and what they what they do because I'm voting. I'm voting with with my wallet. And that's how change is I think that's absolutely so right. And I think we all underestimate our power. Yeah. Uh, and working at fair trade as we try to build it up, uh, I was privileged enough to, if you like, be behind the scenes. And I can tell you the pressure. Uh, how successfully it works on companies, because often companies would say, ah, my inbox is groaning, I'm getting emails, I'm getting letters from people asking me to offer fair trade, and I really don't want to, but my customers are annoying me so much. Tell me more about how it works. And actually going back to our earlier conversation about young people, I also remember the CEO of quite a big company it was hanging in the balance. Would they do fair trade? Wouldn't they do fair trade? And what tip tip was his children coming home and saying, oh, we've been learning about fair trade and are you doing it at work, daddy? And why don't you? And you should. And he very honestly came in and said that in the end was what tipped it because if he thought that's what the future generation wants as a canny company, we'd better meet the demands of our future customers. There you go. I think that that perfectly highlights how powerful just one one or two children can be and how powerful one or two people can be. And um, yeah, I mean, going going back to to Ashton, I think this ties in very well because the companies that you're you're highlighting and and the organizations that you're you're awarding, they're also uh, they may be starting small. Uh, and as the demand grows for these kind of things, they will grow. And ho- hopefully, the idea there is that the the idea spreads and other companies start picking up on it and improving it and and then it becomes the new norm. Absolutely. And I do think we're seeing a shift in business. I absolutely think the uh, attitudes of business toward climate change have shifted in some ways faster than mm. governments have because mm. they're seeing it every day. And actually, uh, it's also about how it connects for me personally, how I first heard about climate change was through the Fair Trade Farmers. Right. telling me that how difficult it had become to grow coffee and it was a 
farmer in Tanzania showing me around his plot and just saying, do you know, it's become a nightmare, coffee growing. We used to always do what our forefathers did, what our parents did. And they said, now it's sunny when it should be raining. It's raining when it should be sunny. Then people get more and more natural disasters. And we started hearing more and more from people in Uganda. There's been a mudslide, destroyed the crop and killed people. People talk about hurricanes destroying the bananas in the Caribbean. People, And actually... Uh, that's when I first began to realise that we have to tackle climate change along with ensuring farmers and workers get a fair deal. Mm. And that they're two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Because for too long, people have paid farmers and workers too little and have also not paid what it costs to, 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 to take out of nature and out of the planet. So all those costs were pushed away in the ruthless drive for profit. And what we've got to do is make sure they're put back in, that companies are ready to pay for what it takes to care for the planet and to farm in a much more sustainable way. And I do think we're seeing that shift among companies. Uh, and that's going to be absolutely critical, not only in helping them change their supply chains, and enabling you and me as consumers to buy products we want that have grown and produced sustainably, but also in helping push governments to make the big, bold changes that they need to make at the big climate change talks and the big trade deals to make sure that we do put sustainability, both of the environment and of caring for people, right at the heart of business models. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And, and that's exactly what I think the Ashton Awards is is doing as well by highlighting the companies that are doing that. And so for people who are interested in actually going to the uh, virtual award ceremony and, and taking part and learning more about the companies that, um, that have made it as finalists and previous uh, award winners, where can people sign up and learn more about, about Ashton? And the awards. Yeah, please come to our website at, as I mentioned, it's www.ashton, which is A-S-H-D-E-N dot org. Uh, you'll find there about the ceremony. It's free to register. It's only going to last about 35 minutes, but I can guarantee you it will be a shot of inspiration and hope because these are the pioneers creating the living alternatives around the world, showing what's possible to put sustainability at the heart of your business models. So I can guarantee you'll have a, you'll come away inspired. Excellent. And I think that's exactly what we want is uh, there's enough doom and gloom in the, in the media about the environment. So a nice shot of inspiration is lovely, especially for 35 minutes of your time. Uh, it sounds fantastic. And again, it's on Thursday, July 2nd. And what time is it? Start? It's at three o'clock uh, UK time. Uh, we, that, we thought that was the best time to try to enable people all around the world yeah. to join us. Please also look at our Twitter feed. We're putting out the links where you can just press through and register there or right. on LinkedIn and Facebook. So yeah, please come and join us. Excellent. Uh, well, I'm certainly looking forward to it. So Harriet, thank you so much for your time. Really interesting conversation. I love the work that you're doing, you have been doing. Uh, and I think Ashton um, is very, I can certainly relate. And it's, uh, we're clearly on the same page here about highlighting uh, amazing people and companies that are protecting and healing the planet. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating. And also, please subscribe, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. And that way you can be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.